Today I'm going to talk to you about suffering like Jesus. That's exciting, right? You want to know about that, right? Uh, if we ever had a write-in of uh, sermon uh, suggestions, you would never get that. You would never get, I want to know how to suffer like Jesus. No, you want to reign with him, you're not interested. I understand. Uh, I'm not all that interested either uh, without thinking about the subject. Here's what it means, suffering like Jesus. It means to embrace and engage with every difficulty and struggle in precisely the way Jesus did. That's what it means to suffer like Jesus. The gymnast who executes a flawless routine. The musician who performs a piece with perfection. You know, that chilling perfection. The athlete who, who makes that play that brings the crowd to its feet in that amazing catch or that amazing shot, that brings the crowd to its feet and perhaps wins the game. I want to tell you something every one of those performers have in common. They suffered. They suffered. They struggled. They endured. They endured pain. They endured boredom. They endured exposure. They faced danger to get that good at something that would thrill you. I say this, mastery, which is what we should be after, always has and always will come from suffering. It would always involve struggle. A while back, I watched a um, um, documentary on the Tuskegee Airmen. What an inspiring story of the Tuskegee Airmen, the first African Americans to ever fly uh, in the U.S. military. And the uh, it's, it's such an incredible story of struggle. Uh, it begins, really, though, with uh, Benjamin O'Davis. Benjamin O'Davis uh, was, when he was a young boy, his father was in the military. His father was very accomplished in the military, but there were very few African Americans in the military in those days. And uh, Benjamin O'Davis got accepted into West Point in, well, he was born in 1912. When he was, in, when he was 12 or 13 years old, which would have put it somewhere in the 19, the 20s somewhere, he got a chance to fly in an aircraft with some barnstorming pilot in Washington, D.C. And he made up his mind he was going to be a military pilot. There weren't any military pilots in African-Americans in the military. There you know, flying was in its very early days then to start with. But he determined as a young boy that's what he was going to do. And through the recommendation of uh, the, the only African-American in Congress, whose name I don't remember, but uh, wrote him a letter and got him accepted into West Point. And all his years at West Point, he ate lunch alone and dinner and breakfast every day because he was black. Hardly anyone spoke to him because he was black and they didn't want him there. And he ignored it. He totally ignored it. And then in about 1941, a 
President Roosevelt decided through pressure from some quarters that they would create a, uh, an African-American flight squadron. And so they did. They created an African-American flight squadron, drafted a bunch of guys, sent them to Ramatelli Air Force Base in, in Italy. Interesting thing, just a side note for me with, with uh, Benjamin O. Davis is he went to North Africa and then he went to Italy, which was exactly the same path my father took in those same time period. My father was a Morse code operator in, in Tunisia, North Africa, and then went to Italy. And that was the path that uh, uh, Benjamin O. Davis took. And here were these African-Americans that were taught to fly planes, all kinds of resistance from the military, that they were even allowed to learn to fly planes. But they were, fly, they were taught to fly planes, and they, they began to escort uh, uh, you know, B-1 bombers into, into Germany. And uh, they were called the Red Tails because their planes had uh, red tails on them. And they were so good and so successful. In their entire war, they only lost 25 bombers in, the, in all of their years of escorting aircraft into, into Germany, fighting the German Luftwaffe. And the bomber pilots did not know they were African-Americans, but began to request them and said, we want the Red Tails to escort us because they were so good at what they did. Even though they were segregated, they had their own base, nobody else went there, these African men, they struggled and they paid the price. And it's it still, the, the price continued. Even when they got off the plane, we got off the boat, after the war was over, they got off the boat, there was a ramp for the African-Americans to go left and the white Americans went right and white Americans were met by a band and, and all kinds of fanfare and confetti. The left, the African-Americans had a one, one lone saxophone player who <laughs> welcomed them off the, off the plane. But three years after the war, the military was only, I believe, the second organization in the United States that was completely integrated. Why did it work? Why was the military integrated as a result of the Tuskegee Airmen who didn't, yeah, they, yeah, they, you know, we talk about suffering. We tell people to suck it up and toughen up and buck up. We use those kind of phrases. There's more to it than that. There's more to it than just bucking up or sucking it up. There's more to suffering than that. There's more to struggle than that. You've got to have a purpose and you've got to be disciplined and you've got to want to be good. You've got to want to be competent at what you do and you've got to want to be skilled and you've got to want to succeed and you've got to want to win. And the Tuskegee Airmen didn't just suck it up. They, they became good and they became competent in spite of the suffering and in spite of the difficulty. And they didn't whine, but they won and they became successful. And the army military was integrated because they suffered and they struggled and they went past the struggle to make something happen. And I am very concerned today that we are losing that desire to struggle. I'm very concerned today that we no longer see the glory of suffering. I'm very concerned today that we, that we have a sense of entitlement and we no longer see that change and greatness and power is still through the cross. Amen? People like Benjamin O. Davis are my heroes. The Tuskegee Airmen are my heroes. Because through great injustice, they knew how to overcome injustice. We must not lose that. Struggle is not only inevitable, it is noble. It's filled with purpose. And this has been greatly misunderstood even by the evangelical church. 
We've racked our collective brains to try to figure out how to use our faith to remove all discomfort. You know, I, I heard a preacher preach one time that when you go to the drugstore to, to, to buy Tylenol, you should buy, do not buy the economy size bottle. Because if you buy the great big economy size bottle, you are having faith for headaches. And the world will, will reward you with headaches because you, you're preparing for headaches. And the church hasn't had a corner on this nonsense. Some of you probably read the book, The Secret by Rhonda Byrne, best-selling book. You know, I'm, I'm encouraged with the fact I don't even need to do a show of hands because most of you haven't read it. And most of you haven't heard of it because truth lasts. Falsity doesn't. It doesn't grab hold of the public imagination and retain its hold like truth does. And because the secret was not truth. And Rhonda, Bur wrote, Rhonda Byrne wrote stuff like, if, if, you visual, if you don't visualize properly, you will invite cancer. and You will attract cancer. And, and, you know, to the extreme that she took it, it was nonsense. I don't completely discount vision, having vision, having faith, and all that. I'll say more about that in a minute, maybe. But because Jesus, you know, another thing that throws us off here is that Jesus constantly relieves suffering. That kind of throws us off. We look at the ministry of Jesus, and he was always going around relieving suffering. And he clearly stated the promise of answered prayer. So you're not totally nuts to to go through the read the gospels and say, well, I believe the Lord wants us to have no suffering. I believe the Lord wants us to have no struggles. But but you, we we if we're not careful, we don't make it all the way over to First Peter chapter four, verse twelve that says, "Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ." so that you may be overjoyed when the glory is revealed. So you see there's a balancing truth. Yes, that there, there, there is a, a place in our life for praying against uh, suffering. And there's a place for our life for being actually delivered from pain and from suffering. Then there's also a place in our life for engaging with suffering and engaging with struggling. And as Brene Brown likes to say, rumbling with, rumbling with suffering. There's a place for that. And see, see, that's the thing. And this is a, truth is such a wonderful subject because truth, here's the thing you need to know about truth. There, there, are, there are ultimate truths in life that have no balance and they need no balance. Jesus is the son of God. That does not need to be balanced. There's no, uh, there's no opposite truth that to hold that intention. He is just the Lord. He is the Son of God. There's no argument. There's nothing to balance that. But then there's truth that we live out in our daily lives that has to have balance. The Bible tells you that you are to work. The Bible says, on the other hand, you are to rest. So what are you to do? Do both. The Bible teaches that you are to be, you are, you are to you are to overcome suffering with faith and pray that God will deliver you, which I do all the time, and God often does. In fact, most, most of the things that could have happened to you haven't happened. 
So God does deliver us from suffering, but then the Bible also says to embrace suffering. So what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to do both. I said you're supposed to do both. You're supposed to suffer. You're supposed to escape suffering. Do both with your life. See, we don't need to completely discount deliverance from suffering. Exhibit A is Paul's thorn in the flesh in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He prayed three times that the thorn, whatever it was, we know it, was, it represented suffering. Whether it was his eyes, which some people think was his eyes, or whether it was demonic powers that would just show up and make this disturb the, wherever he went, we don't know. Whatever it was, he, he sought the Lord three times. And it wasn't just, Lord, I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord the thorn to keep. He was three times he was praying that God would remove that thorn in the flesh, and, and finally the Lord said, no, I have another plan. And then there's Christ himself in the Garden of Gethsemane, in the Gethsemane appeal the Gethsemane appeal, what an emotional appeal. God, if you would let this pass from me. So there's nothing wrong with praying. I pray against suffering every day. It's kind of like this, though. Uh, there are tens of thousands of meteors that scream toward the earth every day from outer space. And a few thousand of them, there are tens of thousands that come that burn up in the atmosphere. A few thousand of them actually hit the earth, but they're the size of grains of rice. So you never know. A few, like this, a few each day the size of a baseball or, or a basketball do hit the earth. And, and according to some, an article I read, once a week or so, the earth is hit by a rock the size of a car. Now, don't you feel lucky? <laughs> and every once in a while, something the size of a house. Oh, a while back, a meteor the size of a house exploded over central Indonesia. And it, it didn't do any damage, but it frightened everybody, you know? Most meteorites, so burn up before the, uh, the atmosphere, and most of them do no damage. So that, that's kind of the way suffering is. Most suffering that comes toward you gets burned up in the atmosphere. Every once in a while, a meteor gets through. Every once in a while, something the size of a baseball hits your life. Every once in a while, for some of us, something the size of a car lands on your house. And something really horrible and difficult happens. So, while I think we could make a case that careful and wise living, faithful praying, and going through life with a positive vision of our future, keeps a lot of chaos at bay. And the idea that we can refuse to attract stress is not an insane idea. But that doesn't change the fact that struggle and suffering is not only an inevitable human experience, it's actually a vehicle that takes us to the better place or the greater reality that we want to live in. I'm here to tell you that it's necessary to struggle. However, transformational suffering can only be possible if we learn to suffer like Jesus. And that's what I want to give you today in this message in the next few minutes. I want to give you a roadmap to suffering like Jesus. 1 Peter 2.21 says, For God called you to do good, even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered for you. He is your example, and you must follow in his steps. How could it be any more clearer? And I love the Message Bible in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Keep your eyes on Jesus who both began and finished the race we're in. Study how he did it, because he never lost sight of where he was headed. That exhilarating finish in and with God. He could put up with anything along the way. Cross, shame, whatever. 
And now he's there in the place of honor right alongside God. When you find yourself flagging your faith, go over that story again, item by item, that long litany of hostility plowed through you, uh, he plowed through that will shoot that will shoot adrenaline into your soul. I can't I can't overstate the need today to be willing to start small in this living in the story of, of the cross. Remember last week I talked about someone who called me about problems in their marriage and I encouraged them, I want you to start living in the cross. Start living the story of the cross. Don't just believe in the cross as this thing where God's blood covered your sins so you could go to heaven someday, but which is a beautiful doctrine and that is awesome and we don't want to lose that doctrine of the uh, of, of the uh, efficacious blood of Jesus that forgives us of our sins and and the perpetuation all those beautiful theological words the atonement that Christ accomplished for us on the cross is is something we cling to and we hold to but did you know that the cross is a way to live the cross is a way to approach your daily life that will bring redemption to your daily life and will not only save you from the hell that, that, that some people are headed toward for eternity, but it will save you from the hell that wants to come into your home and into your personality and into your place of work and into your neighborhood and the hell that wants to come to your life now. You can be redeemed from it by living out the cross in your daily life. It will absolutely work. I can't overstate the need to, to be willing to start small and proactive and living the story of the cross in the minutia of life. When you're waiting at the Department of the Motor Vehicles. When you're on the phone with a government agency. As I was uh, last week in trying to get something straightened out, and Sherry was with a different government agency uh, trying to straighten something out. And don't worry, we're not going to jail or anything. I spent, in a, a, like a three-day period, I, I spent, let me think, uh, four hours on hold. Four hours on hold. I'm not kidding. And, and I, I think Sherry spent equal number of hours on hold. And frustrating conversations. People who said what, what I needed could not be done, could not possibly be done. You know, it was like, it had to do some, with some personal information that they had of mine that I needed. And one guy says, we can't give you that. That's personal. <laughs> and I said, well, sir, I am the person that, whose personal information you have. There, 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 there's the minor irritations from your spouse and the stuff they say and do. If you will learn to live in the cross. There's all these struggles. Bring Christ and the cross into all of it. The struggle with work. The struggle with offenses. Being forced to wait on what we want. Unmet expectations. Personal rejection. The stress of creativity. Material lack feeling devalued, feeling abandoned, being ignored, being passed over, not enough margin in your schedule. I, I had that this week. I, I, had, I had a couple of days when I had no margin in my schedule. I had no breathing room in my schedule. And I'm so glad that this is, I didn't know this stuff earlier in my ministry in life. 
I didn't I didn't have any revelation of this. This is this is like in the last few years that I begin to understand that when stress comes, it's not always something you want to push away. But it sometimes is something you want to settle into and enjoy God's grace. When the day is very stressful and there's hardly enough time, you feel like the next thing I'm going to do, I'm not going to be successful because I didn't have time to prepare. And when you live in the power of the cross, though, and you think of it, you go and do it anyway and you do the very best you can and you don't get an attitude and you don't whine and you don't get angry and you don't get angry who, the, who tied you up and, 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 and upset and bitter and resentful because of you're having such a hard day and some other people have it so easy and you don't get into telling yourself the story that you're a victim. You refuse to tell yourself the story you're a victim because you think every minute Jesus Christ never on the cross said I'm a victim, but he acted like he was in charge of the world when he was on the cross. I mean, he acted like he was in, didn't he? He acted like he was in charge of the world. He's up there. Uh, take care of my mother. Okay, John? John, you take care of her. Behold, behold, my, behold you're your mother, John. Okay, I'm, I'm leaving her for you to take care of. I, I'm done, okay? <laughs> you know, uh, he's like, Father, forgive them. Forgive these, these boneheads, <laughs> these idiots. <laughs> forgive them, Lord. They don't know what they're doing. <laughs> It was, was, I think it was a little insult there. They do not know what they're doing. They are really stupid. <laughs> even even, even talked to God. God, what are, you, what are you thinking? Why have you forsaken me? Boy, there was a guy that knew how to suffer. There was a guy that, he wasn't up there, poor me, and I can't believe this is happening to me. I'm such a good person. I've done so many good things, and why is it happening to me? Except that little why God be saying that's kind of the only thing that you could even, 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 even manage to think of as a whine at all. And then, then, then he, with a loud voice, the Bible says, not with a, uh, with a loud voice, it is finished. I said, it is finished. Triumphant. It's not easy to learn. And it hasn't been easy for me. It's still not easy for me to learn in those little stresses of life, those little tasks that are trying my patience. Because it seems so far removed from something as glorious as dying on the cross. I mean, to fix a toilet seat that I can't figure out. And I, it took me three days because I did <laughs> go to Home Depot and buy a different tool finally. And the different tool worked. You know, I... I, I I usually deal with problems like that with this. And I go, Tom, Tom Mater, are you, is that you? <laughs> or, or Scotty Drew, or Troy Longacre, or Justin Monty, <laughs> help me. <laughs> but once in a while, I need to bear my own cross. <laughs> All these things, boredom, boredom's a big one. We don't like boredom. But you are not going to be successful if you don't learn to be joyful through boredom. And maybe you're experiencing that right now. I don't know. It's possible. It's possible that that's, that's the cross you're having to bear. Well, well, suck it up, you know. <laughs> be like Jesus. 
Say, Father, forgive him. He knows not what he does. <laughs> you know, my, the, my generation, we started the whine about, I'm bored, I'm bored. We, we started that business, and, and, and the next generation has perfected it. I'm telling you, part of the suffering that will make you great is learning to suffer boredom. And, when you, I, I, and don't suffer it, suffer it like Jesus. Suffer it like Jesus. Many things, being abandoned, being ignored, being passed over, our appetites. Boy, you know, we, we look at, we, we have raised our appetites and our feelings to levels of irresistible force. Instead of something I got to plow through. I want to go this place on the internet, but, you know, I'm not going to do it because I'm going to suffer. I'm just going to suffer today. I, I, I want to do this thing. My appetites are screaming for this, this food that's bad for me or or this expression of, 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 of sexual appetite that's bad for me and bad for the world. I know it's bad for me and it's bad for the world. And I'll tell you what, I don't know an easy answer today, but I'm going to just suffer. I'm just going to feel the pain of this. I'm just going to let myself feel the stress of this. And I'm going to give glory to God. I'm going to give glory to God that I'm being stressed because the fact that I'm being stressed means that I'm not doing the wrong thing. Because I would feel great relief and release if I would go do the wrong thing, go eat that thing I shouldn't eat, go to that places on, go to those places on the internet or express myself sexually in that way that is inappropriate. I would feel, I would feel the adrenaline, the uh, serotonin, all those, all those chemicals would hit my brain and I would feel better, but I would rather suffer with Christ and win than to satisfy my appetite and lose. There's no suffering or struggle too, too insignificant for living out the example of the cross. The only way Jesus could come out on the other side of suffering and become the savior of the world was to go through suffering. Now, I say this, you are not going to be the savior of the world the way Jesus was, but don't underestimate what amazing opportunity is on the other side of a struggle. I look at the family that I have, and one of the reasons in that last series, I wanted you to see my family, and we, I hope you didn't feel I was bragging or trying to make anyone feel bad who's not going so well for your family. But I want to tell you, we paid a price for that. I want to tell you, we suffered to have that. You know, we, we didn't get a divorce when we thought about it. You know, and I'm not condemning people who get divorces here today. I, I realize uh, sometimes it's the way to go. And sometimes that's what you have to do. But think about it. If you're thinking about getting a divorce, just pause and ask yourself this question. Am I doing this to avoid struggle? Am I doing this to avoid suffering? Am I doing this because I want certainty in a world where there cannot be any certainty? Just think about it. Think about it and make sure you're in the will of God if you, get it, if you, do, if you take that, make that decision. Pure was the mind of Christ we used to sing. Sinless I see. He the great example is the pattern for me. We used to sing that. 
where he, the chorus says, where he leads, I'll follow, follow all the way, follow Jesus every day. So how do we think and pray when we suffer like Jesus? How do we do that? Matthew 26 gives us an example. Then Jesus went to the olive garden called Gethsemane. He said, sit here while I go over there to pray. You pray through these things. That's how you, that's how you get your answers. You pray through. And God speaks. He, God, he will speak to you. And he will let you know. Somehow, some way, he will let you know. Is this a suffering I should do or suffering I should avoid? He took Peter, Zebedee, two, two sons, James and John, and he became anguished and distressed. There's a lesson in that, too, is that you need friends. You need friends who don't like it when you suffer. If you got friends who like it when you suffer, you got the wrong friends. Get rid of them. If you got friends who don't rejoice, you need friends who rejoice when things go well with you. And get excited when things go well with you, who cry when they don't. And Jesus' friends struggled a little on this particular day, but they were still his friends. So he, he, the principle is there, though. The principle is there. He said, I, I, Jesus did not suffer completely alone, but he, took, he, he brought his friends into the arena of his struggle. He told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Now notice that. He, he let his friends know what he was struggling with. My soul is crushed to the, with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. He went on a little further and bowed with his face to the ground, praying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. So I'm going to give you three talking points for suffering like Jesus in the next five minutes. Number one, never suffer or struggle needlessly, stupidly, or without purpose. I mean, if you, if you got like a, if you got like a growth, you know, I remember a preacher one time telling me he had a growth underneath his belt and it was rubbing and it hurt. Well, he, he went and got it cut off. He didn't go, I'm going to suffer with Jesus. I'm not going to get this cut off. I'm just going to suffer with Christ. That's stupid. Don't suffer when you don't have to. (laughs) There's some types of suffering you will never follow Christ into. You'll never follow Christ into the suffering of an addiction. Never. You'll never follow Christ into the suffering of resentment and bitterness. Never. You will never follow Christ into the suffering of a, a sexually transmitted disease. You, you won't follow Christ into that. You will never follow Christ into the suffering of regret over good deeds undone, uh, undone, the deeds you didn't do. You will never follow Christ into the suffering of the consequences of laziness and inaction. You will never follow Christ into the suffering of sins you wouldn't forgive. However, you can follow him out of those things through suffering. You can follow him out of addiction, out of resentment, out of disease, out of regret, out of the consequences of inaction, out of the unforgiveness of, uh, of you, that you have inside of you if you embrace the concept of redemptive suffering. 1 Peter 4.12, Therefore, since Christ suffered in the body, arm yourself also with the same attitude. Because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. 
as a result, see, some people want to always have a miraculous deliverance from sin. But he's teaching us here that deliverance from sin, the normal pattern is it comes with pain. As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for human desires, but rather for the will of God. And I love the Message Bible. The Message Bible says, since Jesus went through everything you're going through, and more, learn to think like him. Think of your suffering as a weaning from that old sinful habit of always expecting to get your own way. And then you will be able to live out your days free to pursue what God wants instead of being tyrannized by what you want. Isn't that great? Paul and Jesus both teach us that it's wrong to suffer needlessly, though. Paul said, to keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassing great revelations, there was giving to me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient. But Christ and Jesus both set the pattern that the first response to pain should be, I don't want it. That's a healthy person who says in the first response to discomfort and pain, I don't want it. But secondly, in suffering like Christ, you need to know that suffering is so important that even if you don't have any, you should find a heavy burden, pick it up and carry it. You should go find something to do that stresses you out. Really. You should go find something to do that makes you emotionally and physically tired. The Bible says the sleep of a laboring man is sweet. You should find something to do that that you should pick up a burden. Uh, Jordan Peterson said this the other day. He said, find the heaviest weight you can and pick it up. And that will make you strong. You're not the, who you could be, and who you could be is worthwhile. The successful among us bargain with the future. I like that. The successful with, with us bargain with the future. We go, okay, I'd like to have this. I'd like to have more money, or I'd like to have more love, or more intimacy, or I'd like to have more meaning in my life, but I need to give up. I need to sacrifice something today if I'm going to have that tomorrow. And wise people bargain with the future that way. Wise people bargain with the future. I, I, you know, I give my tithe to God. That's a part of bargaining with the future. Because he said, if you will, if you'll honor me with your tithe and offering... I will pour you out a blessing. You won't have room to receive. Well, that's not today. That's tomorrow. So I'm bargaining my future. That's what wise people do. So let me finish uh, the uh, Jordan Peterson quote. He said, the successful among us bargain with the future. What's the difference between successful and the unsuccessful? Question mark. The successful sacrifice. It's time to let go, he says. It might even be time to sacrifice what you love best so you can become what you, what you might become instead of staying who you are. Suffering like Jesus is it's not a grin and bear it thing, though that's better than bitterness. I'd rather you grin and bear it thing would be better. <laughs> but it's to understand the incredible power of sacrifice and to embrace it. God has decided, you see, this is, here's, a, here's, what's, uh, here's what's really cool. Is, and and I, I thought about this a lot the last few years as I, as I 
am tempted to talk to people. I'm tempted to talk to the Christians in the room and the non-Christians in the room. The Christ followers in the room and the non-Christ followers. As though there are two different ways of living. It's as though there are rules that apply to one group and don't apply to the other. But everything in, everything in God's wisdom applies to everybody in this room, regardless of what you've decided to believe. Regardless of what your belief system is, you are a human, and the Bible is written for humans, and actually Christianity is really about, and I wish I had time to explore this, because it's a great subject to explore. Christianity is, is in synchronization with the human experience. Christianity is like there's no religion in the world that's in sync with human experience like Christianity. That's why you're really, really smart if you become a Christian. Because it's synchronization. So this principle of the cross, that's why you can take this principle of the cross, you can take it out of a church environment, you can take it to a secular environment and not even mention, not even mention eternity and eternal hell and all of that, and it will be a useful principle to help people have better lives. It, 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 you, should be happy, you should be rejoicing that you have found something so wonderful, so truthful, and so accurate, and so right, so appropriate to life. It's, it's an amazing, amazing thing. So suffering like Jesus is not a grand merit, but it's to understand the incredible power of sacrifice. God has decided how the world will work. And you can't change how the world works. But you can exploit it. I said, you can't exploit it. The Bible says the hand of the diligent will rule. It just works. Like, what? The world for Adam and Eve, see, after the fall, wasn't destined to always be horrible, but only if they didn't embrace sacrifice. Childbirth, earning one's living through toil, battling thorns and thistles, was the way you were going to deal with the fall of Adam and Eve and the fall of sin. Cain failed. And the story of Cain and Abel, because he wouldn't make the sacrifice that was required. And I can come up short for the same reason, right? You can come up short for the same reason. I'm concerned. You know, I'm, I'm concerned about something. I, and I hear it here. I hear it in the church. I hear it everywhere. We, we say we, we can't, you can't ask people to do that, or we can't do that, or we can't succeed at that because it's hard. We can't expect people to go to a small group during the week because that's hard. We can't expect people to give because that's hard. We, we, we can't expect uh, students to do good in school because that's hard. We can't expect marriages to be any good because it's hard. Why? What's wrong with us? What is, what is wrong with us that hard stops us from having what God says we can have? God told us from the beginning, you can have all this stuff, you can have fruitful land, but you're going to fight thorns and thistles. You can have wonderful children, but it's, it's, it's going to be painful when they're born. It's going to be hard. And you know what? Jason's famous quote to me after I got out of the hospital, and I was whining and complaining one day at home. He came by to see me, and I'm complaining. He said, Dad, hard things are supposed to be hard. <laughs> the Bible says endure hardness is a good soldier. Right. Finally, I will say this. Nothing will change your life. And, and maybe nothing is the wrong. I, I, I get excited when I'm studying sometimes and I write these things down. And 
And I think about it later, well, maybe nothing is <laughs> too extreme. But I'm going to say it. Nothing, I believe, will change your life like treating every unchangeable stress of life as a triumphant carrying of the cross of Christ. Matthew 16, then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Some people are utopian, utopianist. Utopian, that we're going to make a few decisions and the government's going to make a few decisions and everything's going to be easy. I believe utopianism, and I mean this all my heart, is a damnable demonic doctrine that comes right out of hell. I do, I do. It presupposes that some earthly person is going to remove the hardness from life. It's not truth and it doesn't work. Jesus will come when he comes. Until we're called to fight, and fight, and fight, and struggle, and fight to win. And win we will do. Amen? The Christian symbol that brings real hope to mankind will always be the cross. Because it symbolizes the Son of God who embraced the hardest thing, the most vile and shameful thing in his culture, and transformed it into a thing of beauty. We almost had a ch church divided because I wouldn't put up enough crosses. <laughs> you know? And I thought about that many times. I thought, you know, that's a, isn't that an amazing thing? That this object of suffering is so desirable and so beautiful to us that it causes us to worship and we want one on every wall in our church. Isn't that a message about how we should look at hardness and suffering and struggle and transform transform those things that make us struggle into if we will if we will treat them properly we will make them so beautiful that everybody will want a picture of it on their wall that everybody will want to know about our story that will that thing that you hate will become a monument of beauty and a monument of grace I, I just want to stop and talk about that for 30 minutes. Man, that is powerful. That is powerful. What in your life could be transformed today to be a thing of beauty that right now you're resenting it and you're hating it and you're pushing against it and you want it to go away and you're trying to take pills and drink alcohol and take drugs to make yourself not think about it. And if you stop the drugs and stop the alcohol and let yourself feel the pain, God could transform that pain just like he did the cross of Jesus and make it an object of beauty. I conclude, you aren't Jesus so you're not going to get it as perfect as he did. But what if you can just take one part of your life that you're resenting right now and start redeeming it instead? What if, you, you know, okay, in the morning, I'm going to get up and I'm going to get 5% more cheerful about my circumstances. I'm going to get 5% more proactive. And I'm going to get up in the morning, I'm going to solve some. I'm going to get 5% more redemptive towards some negative situation or all negative situations in general, I'm going to become 5% more like Jesus and how I'll respond to irritations. Okay, listen. Make me a promise. Everybody, make me a promise that from this day forward, you'll never again see Jesus' cross as just an insurance policy against you, against you spending forever in the fires of hell. But you will see it as the principle 
by which you will face every problem, every challenge, every area of your life for the rest of your life. Must Jesus bear the cross alone? And I alone go free, for there's a cross for every man. And there's a cross for me. Father, impress the cross upon us, not as an object of horror, and not as an object just of pain, and not in any way that we would glorify suffering or that we would make suffering within itself some kind of um, masochistic uh, uh, thing to be have pride about. We would not have some sort of pride over how much pain we have. But instead, we would plow through the, the pain to get to the other side of it. We, we would plow through the, the inconvenience and the distress so we could get to the other side of it and find the beauty that's beyond that pain. That we would, we would find that beyond the cross, there's a, a tomb. And when we, we die on the cross, we come alive in the tomb. We come alive in the tomb. Jesus died on the cross so he could come alive in the tomb. And that's what we, some of us today in this room need to go through the cross so we can come alive in the tomb. And with Jesus, it had never been done before. No one had ever suffered perfectly like he suffered perfectly throughout his life. He always suffered perfectly. He always dealt with offenses perfectly. We don't, but he did. And the cross became his doorway to conquering the powers of hell. It became his doorway to coming alive in the tomb. It became his doorway to glory. It became his doorway to birthing many, many sons and daughters into the kingdom of God. Help us to grasp that and live in that and walk in that in Jesus' name. If you're going through a tough time today, you know what would be really great. Just get down here and tell these guys. I'm going through a hard day. I, I, I want to do what the pastor said, but I don't know if I can. That's okay. That's okay. So I, I need you to pray for me that I can do that. I want to transform. Maybe you have something else you need prayer for. Maybe you've never decided to become a Christ follower. Today you go, you know, I want to put my whole faith in somebody who would die like that for me. Come down and tell these prayer partners. They have some uh, uh, direction for you if you tell them that. And they have us want to pray with you. Please take communion, enter into communion. Let's enter into response time. Let's enter into the suffering of Christ so we can have the glory of Christ in our lives. Amen.